Hi, I'm Josh and welcome to the Wild Nature Photography Podcast, the podcast that talks the art and the craft of nature photography. It's the 4th of December 2022 and this is podcast number 56 and I'm back in Australia. <laughs> back in Australia from a few days ago, actually two days, two and a half days ago, I had quite the adventure getting back from Santiago. Um, if you follow me on social media, you probably already saw this, but uh, my flight was delayed by more than five hours leaving Santiago. And uh, as a result of that, I got into Sydney very late at night and Sydney airport closes uh, around 11 o'clock at night because of all the houses nearby. So that meant I had to overnight in Sydney uh, and then um, take a very early flight in the morning back to Melbourne. First world problems, I know. It was not a very pleasant experience. I got uh, more or less screwed over by Qantas in terms of view of looking after me, in terms of giving me a hotel once I arrived in Sydney. It was just appalling customer service all around. I have to say Qantas has really gone off the deep end, like a lot of the airlines when it comes down to service. It's really, really poor these days. They just don't seem to care or they don't have enough staff. I'm not sure what the problem is, or maybe it's a combination of all of that. But airline travel these days is just not a lot of fun. But anyway, I don't want to rant about that. I... um I've probably ranted about enough about the airlines in, in, in recent podcasts. Uh, I just don't enjoy flying these days. Um, look, I need to do a lot of it for, for my, for my job, for what I do. Uh, but it's not, it's not part of it that I enjoy. I enjoy obviously the destinations, the photography, the sharing with clients. I love that side of it. It's for me, that's gold, but, uh, the actual getting there, not so much. So anyway, let's put that aside. Today, what I want to do is I want to do a bit more of an expanded report on the Emperor Penguin expedition that I did to Ghoul Bay. So I did publish a trip report for this written trip report up on my blog yesterday, but I thought what I might do is just go through it and expand on it a little bit in some areas. Uh, because it is an expedition that gathers a lot of interest um, from photographers out there. I mean, the expedition ran in obviously November this year, and it, this sort of expedition, it really is a very much a once-in-a-lifetime expedition, uh, not just because uh, it's, you know, deep into Antarctica and we're photographing the world's largest and most difficult-to-reach penguin, the emperor, but also because of the cost. Now, this is a very, very expensive expedition to participate in. Um, let's just put that on the table right up front. Unfortunately, I don't have any say in the price of this. I oh, I work very closely with a logistics company that helps me make this happen. They set the price um, based on the what, the what it costs them to set it up. So I just have to pass it on. I don't really get to do any better than that, I'm afraid. I have written extensively on the difficulties in reaching the Emperor Penguin in the past. It, it really is one of the true ironies of wildlife photography, you know, when you know exactly where your subject is located. But it's an incredibly difficult to get there. It's time consuming. It's expensive. Um, you know, only the only other wildlife I can really think of that's as difficult, or actually even more difficult, is the white wolf of Ellesmere. Um, it's just as difficult to reach. But the problem is, when you get to Ellesmere Island, you may not even find it. Uh, at least with the emperor penguins, we know where they are on the sea ice at Gould Bay. So. It uh, that does make a big difference. At least you know when you finally get there, the emperor penguins are going to be there, and they certainly were. So, this this year I took uh, just seven photographers with me, um, plus myself to lead the expedition. Now this was another one of those expeditions that was supposed to run in November of two thousand and twenty, but the pandemic saw us delayed until twenty two. Uh, that was just the nature of the beast. I'm almost completely caught up now on on my workshops and expeditions after Mongolia in January next year. 
uh, I will pretty much be caught up. So Mongolia was also supposed to run, I think it was in 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm, I am going to have a very, very extensive uh, 2022 retrospective and 2023 what's in store post, uh, written post. Uh, and I'll probably do a podcast for that as well. That'll be up on my blog before the end of the year. Uh, it's in draft format already. I've already started to put it together. It's quite a lot of work for me to put that together because I need to go back throughout the year and assess what I did, where I was, how many flights I took. Uh, so it just takes me a bit of time to put that together. But I'm definitely going to work on that, uh, and it definitely will happen. So let's just get back to the Emperor Penguin Expedition. So, um, you know, obviously it's no small undertaking to get to the sea ice of Ghoul Bay. Um, it really does require a feat of logistical engineering that would probably rival most major construction projects. It's a very significant number of staff that are required to pull this off. You know, you need meteorologists to look at the weather. You need medics in case something goes wrong. You've got chefs, kitchen hand, pilots, co-pilots, airline staff, people to drive the super jeeps. You've got camp organizers, mountain guides, operations teams, someone to look after sat phones. I mean, the, the list goes on really quite extensively and to try and sort of put a number on the number of people who are actually involved in this uh, is difficult. It's at least 60 at Union Glacier um, and at least five, or it was five actually out at the the, um, the camp at Ghoul Bay that we need to support this expedition. Um, the camp at Ghoul Bay, that includes a camp leader, a chef, kitchen hand and two mountain guides. So the mountain guides are really there for their experience to look for things like cracks in the ice uh, and just keep everybody safe. So we need to have them there as well. So when you add all of that up, it sort of gives you an insight into why this expedition, you know, costs sort of around the 50,000 US dollar mark or as much as most small cars. It just does. There's a lot of people involved. Um, and actually even ground staff in Punta Arenas when we arrive, because we have a logistics team actually uh, in South America that are helping us coordinate things like hotel bookings because we're often delayed leaving. So we're having to change hotels transport uh, and transfers to and from airports, all that sort of stuff. So there's a, re there's a lot of staff that go into making this trip, ha this trip happen. Now, um, as I said, the expedition began really with our arrival in Chile, in South America. Uh, I did, unfortunately, succumb to some of the worst jet lag I've experienced in a long time when I got to South America, and I think I might have jinxed myself with my, my recent podcast, podcast on how I deal with jet lag. Uh, I think I knew deep down I was going to have issues with jet lag on this trip. I always have, frankly, on trips to South America. It's a very large time difference between Australia and South America. I had a long layover in Santiago. Uh, I had an additional long delay on the flight from Santiago to Punta Arenas, and that meant my body clock was a real mess by the time I arrived at my hotel. I think it was around 3.30 in the morning. So it, I don't think I actually really recovered from jet lag the entire trip, but um you know, we did have the better part of a week in Punta Arenas for me to get over the worst of it, if you like, where we waited for our weather window for the flight down to Union Glacier in Antarctica. Um, we did, I organised, uh, while we waited, I took um, I took some of uh, the group who were, who were keen to a private farm about an hour's drive from Punta Arenas where we photographed the Andean condors. Uh, soaring on really strong winds, actually, late in the day. There's around 30 pairs of uh, South America's largest bird that roost there. So it's the ideal location, really, to photograph this giant bird. And it is an in incredibly impressive bird. And the wind that we had up there was almost as impressive as the bird itself. It was, at times, strong enough to blow us over. Um, but it is a wonderful place, to, as I said, to photograph these birds because we can drive right up to the top of the mountain, which means we're at eye level with the condors. So that's just a fantastic way to be able to photograph this bird. Now, when it comes to delays, uh, let's just get back onto Antarctica for a moment and away from, from condors. 
Uh, all flights down to Antarctica are a roller coaster of delays. I've, I've written about this before. I've talked about this. You know, unpredictable weather, the lack of proper runway and infrastructure mean the conditions really need to be just about perfect to land a jet on the blue ice at Union Glacier because there's no landing lights, there's no control tower, there ain't nothing there. Uh, except for ice. So you really need the ideal con conditions. Now, historically, I've actually flown down there on a Russian Aleutian cargo jet. That's the Russian version of an American Hercules, if you like. But um, this year, we actually flew down on a privately chartered Iceland Air flight, a 757, uh, instead of the Russian plane. And that was, quite honestly, a godsend of comfort and luxury compared to the really rather agricultural Aleutian. The Aleutian is an amazing plane. I mean, you know, you can put anything in the back of it uh, and uh, certainly it holds an incredible amount of cargo, but it's certainly not a comfortable plane. Without heating, you need to wear earplugs all the time. The seats are very uncomfortable. It's slow. Uh, the Rush, the sorry, the Iceland Air 757 is a lot more comfortable, quiet and much faster. So flight down, down to Antarctica was about, I think it was about three and a half hours, if memory serves, so not too bad. Now, once we were in Antarctica and we landed on the Blue Ice Runway, we're about six miles from base camp. Now, and transfer from that uh, from the runway or the Blue Ice is via specially modified uh, super jeeps with 44-inch tyres. These are the same sort of super jeeps you see getting around Iceland. Uh, they're just fantastic vehicles. They can go absolutely anywhere. Uh, and we had quite a few of them down there. Probably, I think there's about four or five of them down there on the um, on Union Glacier for moving around. So, And from that base camp, we're only only 600 nautical miles from the South Pole, so very, very close. Uh, it's extremely far south, well below the Antarctic Circle. And from there, we took a Basler ski-equipped aircraft out to the Emperor Penguin Colony on the sea ice, which was a flight of about two and a half hours. And normally we have used a twin otter for this. But the Bassler was available. It's uh, faster. It has a little bit more space in it. Uh, so it actually got us down there about an hour faster than the twin otter. So that was that was very, very nice. We actually decided on our arrival in Union Glacier to fly straight down to Gould Bay in the available weather window. Um, this made for quite a long day. It was around midnight when we landed on the sea ice. Uh, but it meant we were on location and ready to photograph the following day. Now, if we hadn't done that, if we had chosen to overnight at Union Glacier, we would have uh, been stuck there for quite a few days because weather deteriorated very quickly after that weather window. So it was a good decision to head straight down to Gould Bay. Uh, certainly the right decision to get us down there, even though it was a very, very long day. Uh, and the conditions on arrival were really outstanding. We had uh, almost the entire group went out and photographed that night, uh, myself included, until about 3.30 in the morning in some wonderful uh, midnight sunlight and blowing snow, beautiful conditions for photographing the penguins, really. And the Bassler and the crew, they stay on the ice with us for the duration of our time at the camp because just in case, it's a safety issue, really, just in case the sea ice starts to break up, we had to get out of there quickly. Uh, we have the airplane on station with the crew. If that was not the case, if the airplane flew back uh, to Union Glacier, then we would have uh, <laughs> we'd be in big trouble if the ice started to break up. The other thing, of course, is it's incredibly expensive to fly aircraft around down in Antarctica. The cost of aviation fuel is ridiculous. So unnecessary flying is to be avoided at all costs. So that for that reason also, uh, the plane stays on station. But it's really more of a safety issue than anything else. Um, and also, I mean, keep in mind, we are at the world's most southerly emperor penguin colony. There is um, no emperor penguins in a full colony further south than, than Gould Bay, where we are located. So we're a long way from anywhere. 
the only communication in or out of that camp is with a satellite phone. But from that camp, we spent our days photographing the emperors and the emperor penguin chicks against a, a backdrop of small icebergs and, and pressure ridges. Now, the colony moves around each year, and this year it was very well positioned for us. It was right next to a very long pressure ridge in the ice, multi-year sea ice. So this is ice that's there all year round. Um, and because they were right next to the pressure ridge, that meant we had an opportunity to photograph them against some blue ice. Uh, and it basically gave us more options for background instead of just photographing them on the flat sea ice, if you like, which which has been the case in, in recent years anyway. Anyway, we generally sort of photographed three sessions per day at the main colony, which was roughly between 9.30 in the morning and 1 o'clock, and then we'd break for lunch. And then from 2.30 till 7.30 with a break for dinner, and then from around 9.30 till about 3 in the morning. So after that, you pretty much collapse into your tent, small mountain tent, for a few hours of sleep before you start again. Uh, it's a punishing schedule, but and it, ver- it does very quickly lead to exhaustion, but it does maximise the amount of time you get to photograph the penguins on the ice. Um, you know, of course, all these sessions are optional, and, and some people took the opportunity to have some downtime where conditions were less than ideal, myself included. You know, when the sun was out and it was blue sky, no wind, uh, I just chose to rest uh, and catch up on sleep because those are not my ideal conditions for photographing the penguins. I really prefer to have heavy overcast conditions, strong winds, blowing snow, uh, real drama is what I'm looking for with these with these penguins. So the blue sky days, I, I took those days off. Um, this year, the main colony was a walk of only about 25 minutes from camp, uh, which was a very easy commute. Um, in previous years, it has been as long as a two-hour walk each way. So uh, this year, that was very much appreciated that it was only a 25-minute walk, and it meant it was very comfortable. Also, it's still very tiring to go out there three times a day when you're pulling a sled with all your, your photographic gear behind you. It's easier than carrying it on your back, but it's still tiring. And the 24-hour daylight means you don't sleep properly down there, you're sleeping in tents. So everyone ends up exhausted quite quickly. But the photography is phenomenal and certainly makes up for that. So we also had a lot of penguins, you know, regularly walking through our camp on the way to the ice edge where you can hear them shuffling, you can hear them calling just outside your tents all day, all night. So pretty much surrounded by emperor penguins the entire time, which is just fantastic. You really are not just photographing the emperor penguins, you're actually living with them on the sea ice. And that is quite a phenomenal experience and very, very unique um, in my experience as well. So a little bit of ancillary information. Now, the ice under the camp is multi-year sea ice, uh, meaning that uh, it doesn't completely thaw in summer. Um, Now, according to my GPS, uh, it was about nine feet thick, so we're about nine feet above sea level, but the ice itself may actually extend deeper than that. Uh, All I can tell you is what my GPS on my Iridium sat phone was saying. Uh, The camp's about 40 kilometres from the ice edge, and that's a commute the penguins make on foot every few days in search of food. So they have a long, long walk. And watching them make that journey across the ice as they slide on their bellies or walk, it's really quite mesmerising. And again, just outstanding photographic opportunities. Um, This year, there were unfortunately no nearby open leads for the penguins to easily access the ocean, so they had to walk the full distance. Uh, And thus, there was no opportunity for us to photograph leaping penguins from the water. That's something that doesn't happen every year. It didn't happen this year. In fact, that didn't happen the previous time I was there either. I've only actually ever seen it once, so it's quite a quite a rare occurrence to have. There are probably some leads closer than the forty-kilometer ice edge, but uh, we were not able to find any. And it's, to be honest with you, it's quite dangerous to start just wandering around on the sea ice. So we need to say 
more or less around camp, uh, within certain areas anyway, that we know are safe or we know there's no cracks in the ice, there's no holes, um, and we can just keep everybody safe. So let's just talk about gear for a minute. So I took four lenses with me. Um, I took the 14 to 35 RF. I took the 70 to 200 f2.8. I took the 85 1.2 RF, and I took the 400 2.8. Now, out of all those lenses, the 400 2.8 was probably the, well, definitely was the lens I shot the most with. Probably 75% of my photographs were made with the 400 millimeter. I actually barely touched the 14 to 35. I really found I preferred to single out individuals rather than focus on the entire colony this year. Now, the colony itself, it's amazing to sit and watch, but it can be difficult to make sense of photographically. Uh, you know, penguin chicks, they run amok through the colony, um, chased by their parents. Other penguins are shuffling around. There's really, it's very difficult to make sense of it. Um, and penguins have no respect for photographic composition. So the entire colony is difficult to make art out of, but amazing to watch. But it's generally the periphery of the colony that provides the best photographic opportunities uh, in my experience. And there's a, a lot to be said for telephoto zoom lenses. And I will definitely take the RF 100 to 500 on my next expedition there in 2024. Those participants who took this lens this year who were shooting Canon used it almost exclusively. Uh, it's an incredible lens. It's very, very sharp. It's very versatile. And I think it's time I added that to my to my lens arsenal. It's not the fastest lens in the world and it's a little slower than I'd like and it's certainly not going to replace my 400 2.8 or 600 f4 for wildlife but it's going to provide me a lot of other opportunities to get images that are difficult with just a 70 to 200. So I'm looking forward to picking up that lens. I'm actually going to pick it up in the next couple of days and when I get into the city. Uh, I was also very excited and happy to try Canon's new RF 1200mm f8 lens. Thanks to, to VJ for that. Uh, very much appreciated. He bought that lens along actually for Puma in South America after the Emperor Penguin expedition, but he took it down to the Emperor's and I was able to test this lens out. Now, 1200 millimeters is an awful lot of focal length. Let's just put that on the table, but it does offer a very unique opportunity to maximize telephoto compression and really squash penguin subjects up against the background. So whether that's blue ice or sunset. And it has a very unique look to it that you cannot get any other way, but it's possibly with a 600 with a two times extender, but I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, it really is quite phenomenal. The telephoto compression of 1200 millimeters is really, really unique. But conditions need to be really ideal to, new, to use this lens, um, as there's always a lot of air molecules between you and the subject when you're at 1200 millimeters. And those air molecules need to be free from heat haze or ice crystals or blowing snow, or the subject just simply isn't going to be sharp. That's the, the pure reality of it. Now, there's been a lot of misinformation on the internet about this lens. Um, there are many forum posts that claim it's nothing more than a 600 f4 with a two times teleconverter welded on the end. Uh, and I can tell you that's not the case. The additional optics at the rear of the lens are certainly there to extend the focal length from 600 to 1200, but they're precision optics that are customly tailored specifically to that lens. They're not the same optics in the generic two times teleconverter. And so the lens as a result behaves very differently to a 600 millimeter F4 with a two times on it. It acquires focus faster. It's got improved optical quality over a 600 with a two times and it tracks the subject more accurately as well. So, I don't know, is that difference worth the steep price of admission over a 600 F4 with a two times? That's going to depend on your mileage and your wallet and your need to shoot at 1200 millimeters. For me, I just can't justify it. There are places in the world that I would love to have that lens and be able to use it, but 
I can't justify dropping 30 something thousand Australian dollars on that lens for those limited opportunities. It's just easier, less expensive for me to travel with a two times teleconverter and have 600 and 1200. And if I travel with a 1.4, I've also got 840. So all with one big prime lens. The problem really with traveling with the 1200 is it's so long that you really need something shorter telephoto as well for wildlife. So you're probably going to need to travel with either a 400 or a 600 or 100 to 500 as well. So I think it's very subject dependent. There's definitely a place for this lens out there in the field. It's just for now, it's certainly not going to be something that I'm picking up just too expensive for me. So anyway, after uh, days at Gould Bay, um, they started to draw to a close. We packed up our camp and um, we ref- left around lunchtime for Union Glacier. Our flight back from Gould Bay to Union Glacier was pretty much uneventful. Uh, we had four days with the Emperor Penguins, so with a full allotment of time down there. And that's really a lot of time uh, when you can photograph 24 hours a day. If you think about how much time you might have in comparison, say on an African safari game drive, you might go out for two hours tops on a game drive. Here you've got 24 hours uh, as opposed to two game drives a day of maybe four hours. So it's a lot of time out in the field to photograph the penguins. So four days is actually enough. And during that four days, we had a great range of conditions. You know, we had blowing wind, we had blowing snow, we had a couple of blue sky days, a little bit of everything. So that was nice because the entire group was able to capture images that gave a very diverse portfolio. Um, so I was pleased about that. Now, we were hopeful we were going to spend just one night in Union Glacier uh, before flying back to Punta Arenas, but we got trapped by a really quite savage Antarctic storm that came over the uh, Drake Icefall and really ripped through camp. We had uh, winds in excess of 48 knots, which is around 27 metres per second. Um, the storm hit a few hours after we landed and, and went through most of the night. I actually was so tired, I slept through pretty much the entire storm. Um, but those who were awake told me the, the tents were shaking pretty violently uh, and that it was pretty exciting. But as I said, I, I, I pretty much slept through it. But once the winds abated, we took advantage of another window, weather window and we flew back to Punta Arenas, uh, where we wrapped up our expedition. Um, it's a little cliche to say it, but it's worth saying, you know, uh, camping with and photographing the emperor penguins is really a life-changing experience. It's not like a peninsula expedition where you go down there on ship, you, where you feel like a visitor. Here, you feel total immersion because you are sleeping in tents surrounded by the penguins, and it's just a phenomenal experience. Uh, it's unparalleled photographic experience, And I think, in my opinion, it's one of the best wildlife experiences to be had in the world today. Um, I'm going to be returning again in November of 2024. That expedition is sold out, uh, has been sold out for some time. I am looking at going back again in 2025. So if you are keen and you're excited about traveling to the sea ice at Gould Bay to photograph ember penguins, then just drop me an email uh, to register your interest. There's no obligation at this point. Uh, simply just to see if there's enough interest for me to run this again in 2025. There probably will be based on the emails I've already received. Um, So I may well put that up on my website very, very soon. So that's pretty much what I wanted to go over in a little bit of expansion on the Emperor Penguin Expedition Report that I I published yesterday on my blog. Uh, Just in terms of the Canon R3s, they obviously performed flawlessly while I was down there. There was uh, several other photographers also shooting Canon with R3s. No one had any issues at all. For me, this camera has just been an absolutely phenomenal wildlife tool. The fact that that camera can track the eye of an emperor penguin, which is black uh, on a black on black feathers, is against a all white background, is pretty phenomenal. 
Uh, I didn't know whether the R3 would be capable of actually doing that, but it can, and it did. And it actually was able able to do it during heavy snow uh, when the snow was flying with the wind as well. So, again, phenomenal camera. Uh, I've, I feel that that camera has just made my job so much, much easier than it used to be, and it's a camera I'm very much looking forward to using. So I'm looking forward to taking it to Mongolia too for the Snow Leopard and the Palace Cat as well. So I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, it is warm here in Melbourne now. It's about 30 degrees. Summer has definitely arrived. Um, I'm going to be here in Australia for pretty much uh, this month, I think. Uh, I have to get my Mongolian visa sorted out, and uh, that's going to take a couple of weeks at least. Um, and then it'll probably be time to fight in Mongolia already. So we'll just see how that all sort of comes together. Uh, but I'll certainly be doing a packing list for that as well. So that's it. We'll wrap it up there uh, for the day. I'm Josh. It has been the 4th of December, 2022, podcast number 56. Look forward to seeing you out in the field. Take care.